This evening's reading can be found on page 1917 of the Church Bibles. It's taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, starting at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, as we come to these uh, sometimes difficult words, we pray that we and we pray that you would help us, and we thank you that you love us, and that Jesus came and died to forgive us. Amen. Uh, thank you very much for putting the uh, PowerPoint up. Um, a, a little bit of background. As with each of these churches, it's clear that John is familiar with them because Jesus, in each of these letters, pulls out something that would require a little bit of local knowledge. So we're in the Lycus River Valley, and we can see, well, we can see a little bit that there's a trade route there, that's the dotty line, and there's the Lycus River as well. Uh, And compared to some of the other settlements or churches that um, John has been writing these letters or recording these letters to, it's relatively small, but disproportionately wealthy, okay? So it's, it's, it's smaller than the others, uh, but it's much better off at punching well above its financial weight. Uh, it's quite interesting, uh, it, just in that respect. So we've got a slightly different uh, perspective economically, if you like, and socially about what this church might be like. Um, at Hierapolis, you can see sort of almost dead center of that map, uh, there are some hot mineral springs at the pagan temple of Mankaru. This was a big tourist attraction. Think Lourdes, 
okay? This was a big tourist attraction where people went, bathed in the hot springs, and healing within the pagan ceremonies was, uh, uh, was an expectation. Uh, further down river, though, at the Lycus River, uh, uh, sorry, the Lycus River, follow it to Colossae, just sort of off down right, off-center, uh, Colossi actually benefited from some very, very clear, fresh, cold springs in a hot country. Very important. So Hierapolis uh, has the hot, minerally bit, and Colossi has the cold, refreshing, drinkable bit, which helps us probably navigate and understand most of what this message is about. Okay? Because that means that at Hierapolis... You could go for a lovely sort of bathing, sort of mineral healing retreat. And Colossi, you could sort of just drink away the hot, sweaty day. So that's fantastic. But there's some other stuff going on as well. Um, there you go. Nice hot mineral springs. Who doesn't want to dive in there? Um, this is one of my favorite parts of the world. It's near the Shepherd and Dog pub. It's a very good pub. But here is the spring at the village at Falking in East Sussex, our neighbours. And um, in that spring, it, it just pours out all the time. It's at the foot of the Scarp Slope. I've been in the... Well, I've been there, sorry, not necessarily in the pub, uh, but I've been there, and I've seen people draw up with an estate car, large beer-sized barrels, and fill their fresh water supply from there. Ironically, if you walk over to the, um, the farm at Standine, uh, they've got a donkey wheel... Which, which has to go the 200-foot extra to find the very same water. And so they, they made a big thing of this in, in the village of Falking, uh, which is superb, uh, and it's a nice little place and a decent lunch. Anyway, by and by. Uh, sorry. Also, um, right, something, else about, uh, something else about Laodicea. In the 20s, in the 20s AD, they had a, ma a massive earthquake. The whole area is earthquake-prone. Uh, and I haven't really been to sort of mainland Greece, but I gather that's a real thing for them. Uh, in the 20s, the, 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 the town was flattened, and they appealed to Caesar for help. In the 60s, it happened again, worse, in fact, but they had become so wealthy, they said to Caesar, no, don't worry, we can sort it out ourselves. And they paid for the rebuilding of the city, the whole city, out of their own pockets. It was quite a, quite a statement actually to make. No Caesar, we don't need the financial resources of the Roman Empire or its insurance companies or what have you. We'll do it ourselves. And that's actually another little problem that we see emerging in this text. Uh, the last thing, uh, black sheep, uh, this is very relevant because they made a lot of their money from black wool. It's hard to find and so that was their principle uh, industry, or one of their main and, and sort of bigger industries. They made a lot of money out of black sheep, which is sort of slightly ironic, I suppose. But that's one of the things that comes again. It feeds into this, this letter. They're asked to wear white clothing. There's something there about what are they like. Anyway, let's, uh, let's get into the body of the text, and if you want, you can have the picture of the sheep up for a bit. Um, if we've been reading these last, these last six letters, um, hopefully you've got a sense of, maybe you've got a sense of satisfaction, actually, if we're honest. 
that the ones that I've sort of preached on, I missed the last one, but thank you very much for that. Um, but the sense in which, well, we're not into pagan worship and we haven't, we haven't mixed in our theology with that of other religions and we're not into Freemasonry or, or whatever it was they were up to in Thyatira. And, and, and we've, we've managed to sort of make sure that our doctrine's pretty pure and nobody's heard of a Nicolaitan round here. Thank you very much. We might have a sense of satisfaction uh, about, thank goodness, I've read the first six letters to the churches in Revelation, and actually I'm not guilty of any of those. Well done, thank you very much. And this one, therefore, comes as a bit of a slap in the face, doesn't it? Where do we start? These are the words of the Amen, the faithful true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. So he starts with their work. Okay? But unlike all of the other church's deeds, I know you're hot, you're neither hot or cold. I wish you were either one or the other. Their deeds are the problem or the lack of. So whereas the other churches, Christ points out, I'm so amazed at what you've been doing. Faithful, persecution, you've, you've endured. And they've got internal problems. Here it's kind of this whole corporate problem. The whole body is kind of lackluster and a bit lazy. And if you have a sort of, I was, when I was reading this, the first thing that came to mind was uh, the, pro, the prophet Amos's words to the kingdom of Judah. Uh, when, when, when there's a poem at the start of the book of Amos where he's pointing out the sins of each of Israel's neighbors. And, and you can imagine the crowd hearing just how bad everybody else was. And then of course this, this thing spirals in on them, but you, Israel, are the worst. And this, entire, this letter kind of has that ring around it because it, it leads us to thinking, okay, well, if I didn't do all of these things, there's this kind of catch-all. But let's not beat ourselves up too much yet um, because these letters are to be read as a whole and they're written to the whole church and so there are elements of truth in all of them uh, which we need to apply to the whole church. But... Laodicea has nothing to commend it in the same way as, say, Pergamon. Pergamon is commended in 2.13, I know your works, love, service, faith, and patience. And as for your works, the last are even more than the first. They're growing in their works in Pergamon, but here in poor old Laodicea, it's a rather different story. I wish you were either one or the other, but because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I want to just think about that, that, that hot or cold thing. You know, up the road, there's a place where people can find healing. Down the road, there's a place where people can find spiritual, find refreshment. They're not even doing those. And the idea of Luke, nobody would want to drink lukewarm mineral water, would we? No, several people at the front pulling ex excellent faces, which we'll put up later. Uh, to help us understand that. So you can get a sense of that this church hasn't really embraced its responsibility. This part of the wider church is allowing things or really just not paying attention to things. And it's simple, a bit simplistic perhaps, to focus on, well, you know, their, their spirituality. Oh, they were spiritually cold or they, they just didn't get it. They weren't on fire or something like that. But the focus is really on what they do. And it saddens me a little bit to say, and I'm not pointing fingers or anybody in this room or anybody that I, in particular, but one does come across people who are spiritually on fire and absolutely no use. 
you know, so heavenly minded, no earthly use. Uh, and as it does, it is a temptation, actually, to be so focused on what we're doing or what we're about and who we are that we actually don't relate or do anything. Um, what I like to call tadpole churches or tadpole Christians because the legs are like this. There's no activity, nothing, no strength to do anything. And yet, quite clearly, they're supposed to become something. So it's an interesting dynamic. So it's not just about whether there's... They're not, it's not, it may not be a spiritual question. It's really about what they're doing with what God has given them, which is quite uh, a quite powerful thought, isn't it? And sadly, what they do brings no pleasure to Christ at all. I wish I could vomit you out of my mouth. And in fact, if you're looking at the sort of the heavenly realms of the, the, the bigger cosmo, cosmic picture, the angel of the church in the Laodicea is also getting it in the ear. Because this is the church that they, they're supposed to have some sort of responsibility and they're letting, we're letting the side down or this church is letting the side down. Well, let's see if we can sort of pick to it, uh, sort of pick a sort of path to understanding it. Um, let's, let's see what Jesus says is the problem. How did they get to be in that situation? Well, you say, verse 17, I am rich and I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Can you imagine? So can you see just the capacity to overcome some kind of great earthquake disaster with what was the money that they had? To overcome the tragedy of that, to, to be able to feel that they could replace it, had shifted them away from understanding who they were in creation. They'd lost their sense of being creatures who were dependent to becoming independent and quite well off, thank you very much. What, do we, what would we need God for? And within a church, that's quite a frightening thought, isn't it? Because the this letter, this part of these letters, is introduced, just the verse, uh, verse 14 part, the little bit at the end, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I have no need of anything that God might possibly want to give me, even though he's the ruler of creation, the one who put me together and placed me on earth. That's a high place to fall from, is it not? Actually, when you think about it, I don't need you. What is, what is, what is that? You wonder what their church would be like. And would they miss the Holy Spirit if you didn't turn up one day? It's a fascinating sort of insight, isn't it, to how we can slowly allow things to creep in and replace our need for God. Our need to be part of him. So you can see that the wealth that they'd had and the self-sufficiency that they demonstrated to Caesar himself, had made them quite independent of him. Few things, perhaps, sum up Western Christianity so eloquently as these words here. I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I have need of nothing. It's an interesting thing. It shows, perhaps, how West, you know, our attitudes to Christianity in the West, particularly, have marginalized faithfulness, church attendance, growing faith together as being kind of a fringe activity. You can see how um, 
that displaces us. It, 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 we stop being relevant if that's all we've got. It's quite a worrying sort of theme, isn't it? And yet, actually, the words perhaps Jesus uses to sum them up are blind and wretched and poor and miserable and naked. That before God, they're actually none of it counted for much at all. That it was just a, it was just a show. It was just something that they presented to the world around them, their neighbors, their business partners, uh, the, the people who they dealt with, so that they would look like they were on top of it. And yet they were nothing inside. I'm reminded of the, when Jesus talked about the whitewashed tombs, that the Pharisees, everything looked perfect, but they were dead inside. They were dead inside. And Jesus paints these horror, this horrible picture, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Quite a, a distressing, actually, description when we think about it. Well, there's good news in this. Sorry if you feel like, like ooh, why did I come to this, this place on Sunday night? But there is good news, um, because this message is from the Amen. This message is from Jesus, the Amen himself, the truth of God. This message comes from Jesus, the truth of God. Truth. In a world of nothing much else, he's, he is everything that God wants for us, everything that God wants to demonstrate and present to us as being who he is. The Christ is here. I am everything that God is about. And so there's this, first of all, there's this reminder that God is there. He's present. And that whatever world they live in and whatever ideas that they're cramming in, the big idea, the best idea, I've banged on about this a lot lately, is that he is here. That he is everything about God that we need to know. And he also describes himself as faithful and true. Two great adjectives. Who would not want those on their, on their, on their epitaph? Faithful and true. Who lived as God called him to and held on to his word. And as a true witness. You'll notice in some of the other, church, uh, other churches, people had died. People had been persecuted. People had been martyred. And there's that reminder that there's a cost involved in this life. There's a sacrifice that may be at the end of the road, that we may have to make choices about how we spend their time, our time and money. That they're quite challenging for us. And he is, as I've mentioned already, the one over all creation. The one over all creation. I quite like that comment in, um, when Paul is speaking to the Areopagus in Acts 17. But he talks about how God moved boundaries of nations so that people would seek him. You know, that God is involved and invested in, the, in, in what he's made. He hasn't left it to sort of rot. He wants it to be a place where people will look for him. And so there's this reminder that Christ the one who is over all creation, is addressing. However important they think Caesar is, however important whatever structures they lived under, however important we think the structures we live under are, Christ is over all of that. He's over all of it. 
He's permitted some of it. He's permitted some of it to, to run its course, principally so that we would find him. We would seek him. And then he counsels them to do three things. Buy gold refined in fire. That they may be rich. This isn't prosperity gospel. Um, this is about what you do. How you spend your time and your energy and your money. It's about how we live, what, how, how we treat people, what, what possibilities we see. And the focus is very much similar to Matthew 6, where Jesus reminds them, don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. He's, he's saying to them, come and do the things that are of, of worth, of lasting value, things that will stand the test of time when, when heaven finally comes to earth, when the restoration really begins, it will be something we see. It's refined, you see. It's something that stands the test of a bit of, of difficulty, trial, troublesome things. Put your effort and your, put your trust in those things. Put, put, the, put your effort into those things that will last, that have come from God. That relationship that you have, the bonds you have with your brothers and sisters here, the opportunities to meet with people and and do things for them that would please our Savior's heart. The next thing he asks them to do is white clothes. Buy from him white garments that will hide their nakedness and their shame. Contrast to the black garments the city had made its money on. Contrast to the black... Can you imagine? It's like... It's a, whole designer, you know, a designer suits kind of town. Everyone in black. But here, no, Jesus wants them to stand out. That your lives may be different from the ones around you. That there will be different values taking shape here. That you will not be doing things according to the, to the fashion of the time, but that you would be somebody who stood apart. That you're, you would not be sort of joining the crowd, but you would stand out. Ironically, you know, the white sheep would be the one that stood out. Because they're not looking for validation and belonging in the same ways that their neighbors and friends were. And anoint your eyes so that you can see. Um, I touched on this very much this morning, and I'm not going to make a big thing about it, but getting used to varifocals sucks. And um, I certainly... When you miss a curb, that's interesting because your leg's not ready for it. And I do understand a little bit more about getting old, although I'm not there yet. Um, but like this morning's message, uh, like Richard was saying, when the father saw his son a long way off, and perhaps we need to train ourselves to think, how, is this how can this situation go better? How can what's in front of me have some kind of kingdom or heavenly outcome? How is it that I can see what's going on in front and see the sort of thing that God might do at the same time? How is it that, how can I learn to do that? How can I not just see the problem and, and that's, but actually see that God might want to do something and what therefore, what are the deeds I'm going to need to, golden things I'm going to be able to bring into that? Because the chances are that people are talking to us, the hope is that people are talking to us because we're dressed 
theologically or spiritually, at least in white, and that they're opening up to us because we're different and we don't do the same things as the rest of the world. So Jesus is calling the church here to be a display of his splendor, to be different, to act, live, see things differently, and be the kind of movement that he, he started. Fulfill it. And the great thing is, just if we're saying to ourselves, I can't do any of those countercultural things, or I hadn't even thought of doing those sorts of things, the great news is that Jesus loves the broken church just as much as the successful one. Did you notice that he says, but I love those who I, 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 who I discipline those I love. I haven't given up on you. I know you're not where you should be, but I still love you. And that's really important to hold to, uh, together, isn't it? It's really important to, to take away with us and say, okay, fine. We're not where we should be. Jesus says, be earnest, or in better translation, be zealous. Have the energy and passion for it. And, and get on with it. You've got a chance to change, and I'm waiting for you to do it because I want to join in. I'm just outside waiting for you to ask me to help you, which is beautiful. John Piper uh, tells a story which he, re he read in the Reader's Digest, February 1998. If you've got it knocking about, look it up. And it's about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the northeast of uh, the States five years prior to that story when the husband was 59 and the wife was 51. And they now live, according to this story, in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on a 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. John Piper says, at first when I read this, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life, before you give an account to your creator, be this. Play softball and collect shells. Can you picture them on judgment day? Look, Lord, see my shells. I'm suspecting that Jesus would say, I know they're mine. I put them there. I made them. What have you been doing? And while I don't want to get us into a life of works and guilt about stuff, there's a sense in which we ought to discover something about what we do and why. At PCC this week, we were celebrating, actually, how amazingly this body of people can, can keep us going with the compliance stuff and not lose sight of mission. That we're cracking on with those things. But this is the year of vocation, and there's more to do. And there's more people's gifts to discover. There's more things to find that we have not yet demonstrated to the world. And so this is opportunity, perhaps, for us to think, Lord, what would you have me do? Because he loves those who haven't done it yet or haven't got there yet just as much as those who did. So let's remind ourselves, perhaps, in a moment of quiet, a moment of communion, that Jesus came and did the greatest thing, that we might be able to do things for him. He forgave us. He healed us. By his spirit, he refreshes us. He leads us. He equips us. He's gifted us. All we need, we have. So let's live for his glory. So his church lives, breathes, jumps for joy again. Amen.